And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. I do hope that you haven't come for warm fuzzies this morning. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, with Jesus' announcement to his disciples of what was coming, um, there's a, a, a serious key change in the tune that Luke is singing with his story. And rather abrupt also. Um, immediately following sort of the, the height to which the gospel had reached at that point with Peter finally realizing, recognizing, confessing, you are the Christ. That point to which the whole narrative has been building. And we can imagine at, at this point as, as Peter is making this confession and making this realization and confessing this, what the disciples' perspective must have been for about 15 seconds. Um, this is the Christ, and he affirms it. And this is the Messiah. This is the one to rule and to reign and to, to free us from our enemies. And here we are. We're right here in his company. We know him. We're his friends. All of these great things are coming. We are headed for glory. But then immediately, this announcement of suffering coming and rejection coming, and death coming for Messiah himself, something we we see in the account. They're not able to comprehend, but the question is, this fate that's coming for Messiah, how, how are his disciples, how are his followers, how are his inner circle, the members of his inner circle, how are they going to be, how are they going to be kept from being negatively affected by what happens to him. They won't. The bad news concerning himself immediately is followed by bad news concerning them. Just as they had shared in his power, just as they had shared in his ministry and his authority, so, he tells them, they're going to share in his suffering. And not just they. Um, It's for the broader group of of disciples who are there with Jesus. Mark tells us at this point in in relating the same thing that he he basically turns to the crowd. He turns to the rest of the disciples, not just the twelve. Luke, again, changes it a little bit more even and says, And he said to all. Now, normally... Um, I would spend some time as we go through a, an account like this, sort of narrowly 
considering the part of the story in its context, what's all going on there. And then sort of later through the sermon, sort of move into how it can be applied to us and our setting. But this is one section of Luke's gospel where he skips that step for us entirely. The specific point, again, is being made here of expanding what Jesus is about to say and this hardship that's about to be experienced, expanding it to more than just the 12, more than just the crowd, but to everyone who reads this account and considers following Jesus. Luke has already done the work that oftentimes I do of generalizing, in fact, of universalizing this teaching that Jesus is about to give universalizing it to, as Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Okay, Luke wants you, the reader, the hearer, he wants you to know and he wants you to know right up front that what Jesus is about to say applies to you as well. Those of you who have already decided to follow Christ, those of you who are considering following Christ, prospective disciples. It's not for some special select super saints that he's speaking. This is for anyone who wishes to follow Jesus. Anyone who desires to receive all of these blessings we've been reading about that he's giving, that people are receiving through him. Jesus is not prepping a bait and switch. Jesus wants everyone to know. He wants to be perfectly clear about what following him is going to require. We should be clear for ourselves what Jesus is calling us to. We should be clear in ourselves as we're considering following Jesus. We should be clear in this as we're encouraging other people to follow Jesus. What is it that Christian discipleship is going to look like? Well, it's very far from easy. Um, There are three things that he says, first of all, that we must do. First, he says, anyone who come after me, let him deny himself. What is meant by this? Well, consider this. Consider that our, our natural orientation is to our own goals, our own personal desires, our own just default approach is to naturally care for and protect and please ourselves. Um, We're just hardwired to affirm and pursue our desires, our interests. But if we would wish to follow Christ, we are called to perhaps the most unnatural frame of mind possible, and that is to go against that nature in its entirety. We have to reject our default tendency to think of ourselves and instead treat our desires and our aspirations and our hopes as if they weren't the most important considerations. And even more than that, to treat our lives as if they are no longer ours. Note also again, We're not called to deny this or that particular thing in Jesus' call here. It's a comprehensive denial of one's entire self that Christian discipleship 
requires. Jesus Christ demands your all. All right, well, there's the, the negative, I mean, in the sense of what we're to put away, what we're to deny. But what is to replace that? If we're denying ourselves, what then are we affirming instead? Take up his cross daily is the second thing Jesus tells us that we must do if we would be his disciples. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, the literal picture with which the original hearers would have been quite familiar, the literal picture behind this metaphor, is a condemned criminal carrying the beam of his cross out to the place where he is about to be executed. This is the literal picture. On his way out of the village uh, to suffer and to die. And prior to that, journeying to this end amidst terrible public shame, the jeering of onlookers as a condemned man goes to his death, and not just to death, but to long, exposed, prolonged, shameful death. So we begin to get the picture that Jesus is painting for us. Following him is not calculated to make us comfortable or safe or popular. Now, We've been picking up clues along the way that this wouldn't be the case. If you remember back to his Sermon on the Plain, remember he said that if you're reviled for my name, you'll be blessed. He talks about being spurred, your name spurred as evil on account of the Son of Man. So we've seen hints of this along the way, but they've sort of been brief and passing. But now we're reminded, oh yes, this has been at least partially in view the whole time. Discipleship under Christ, the call to take up our cross, is a call for a willing embrace of the suffering and also the shame that will probably, very likely, most likely come from what? From associating ourselves with Jesus. So just as the criminal on his way out is on his way to death, And walking to his death through shame, that being a literal picture, Jesus is telling us that we need to be willing to suffer and face death and shame along with him. It'd be hard enough if what Jesus was asking was for us to do this once, to literally give up our life and endure that shame as an event once. But if you look, he's asking us to do even more than that. He tells us that this is something that we're supposed to be doing daily. Um, To wake up each day, every day, and to step forward into that day as if you're headed to the firing squad. As if you're heading to the hangman's noose. Every day. I've said this before. The cross has become a religious symbol, a symbol of devotion. And we wear them around our necks and we paint them on our walls. Remember... (laughs) For the original here, it would be the equivalent of us wearing little electric chairs around our necks on necklaces. It was a symbol of painful shame. Well, obviously, we can't go to the firing squad more than once. We can't go to the noose more than once. We can't go to the cross more than once. Um, We can't give up our bodily life 
more than once. <clears throat> what is Jesus talking about here? Well, it shows that literal physical death, even though many times and, and today even many places is a very real possibility, that's not the only thing or not even the main thing <coughs> Excuse me. that's in view here. There's a, a whole lot of smaller ways in which we're called to accept that suffering and that shame that come from our identification with and following Christ. <clears throat> Declining to go to a party. Thanks. That your office mates are inviting you to because you know the party's at a place inconsistent with your Christian profession. Even though you know you're going to be teased or maybe worse for not going. Uh, giving an honest answer to a question from someone about the Bible's teaching on homosexuality or other sexual immorality. When you know that's being asked by someone hostile who's going to rail against you for your answer. Maybe even the setting aside of a recreation that would regularly prevent us from attending worship. Even though it's something you really enjoy and can't be done at other times. These are just a few. There's all kinds of smaller ways in which we take up our cross daily. We suffer and we're willing to put ourselves forward and even willing to suffer embarrassment or shame because of who we are, who we're associated with, and what we believe. And these smaller ways, which are most of the kinds of ways that we're going to face in our lives, these smaller ways are just as important as these bigger ways in which we might be called to suffer shame for Christ. I've spoken to people who say, I would be willing to suffer death for Christ, but they aren't willing even to stifle a harsh word to pay somebody back who's offended them. I've talked to someone who said, I would go to death for Christ, but they won't even go to church. Big tests in our lives will come. Big places where we're tempted to compromise our faith in Christ and our belief in what he teaches. And don't think that you're going to be prepared for those big tests when you're failing all of the small ones. Take up your cross daily. It's an exercise. It's a practice. It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. Discipleship under Christ means accepting the inconvenience and the suffering and the embarrassment and the shame that sometimes will come from following him. And again, it's something we're called to daily. Jesus then gives the third part of what it means to follow him and he's, to come after him. And he says, and follow me. Uh, for the disciples, especially for the 12 at this point in the story, this is going to literally mean, I've told you a couple times, 951 is this, this turning point where Jesus and his disciples begin their trip to Jerusalem. Well, in just a number of verses, this is what the disciples are going to literally be doing with him, following him, knowing that he's going to his death. For those of us who are further removed from that situation, how do we follow Christ? Well, we fulfill this part of our discipleship by, by listening to his teaching, by attending to it, to obeying his teaching, by imitating Christ's pattern of life. And it's this specific undertaking, following Christ, obeying Christ, it's this specific thing that will most certainly cost you in one way or another, at some time or another. It's in the course of listening to Christ, 
believing Christ, following Christ, imitating Christ. It's in doing that that we're going to be called to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses. To ignore our own will and to set it aside to pursue the fulfillment of God's will. To reject your own desires in place of God's desires. And to pursue this course no matter what the suffering and death and shame will result. This, this is the discipleship to which Jesus is calling any, any, all, everyone who would follow him. Which raises the question, why in the world would we want to do that? What's, what's in that for us? Um, what's the good news about that? Why would I willingly choose to lose my own life? It's insanity. Well, first of all, is it? Um, consider the long view. The long view that was expressed in, in our first scripture reading in Psalm 49. Which you could summarize, you can't take it with you. You won't take it with you. Don't think you can take it with you. <clears throat> the long view says, they're going to lose everything anyway. You're going to lose it all. We all die. Even on a merely materialistic, natural way, the question is, how are you going to keep from losing it all? And there is not an answer to that question. You will lose everything. As Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, Everybody already knows this about the bodily life. Not many people think about it. It's one of those things you try to push away by entertaining or amusing yourself into a stupor. Not thinking about the fact that you're going to lose everything. But we know it. But then, even then, we might ask, okay, well, if ultimately I'm going to lose it all in the end, then why shouldn't I at least commit myself right now to enjoying as much of it as I possibly can? As Paul says, let us eat, drink, and be merry. Well, Paul's answer to that and our answer to that as we struggle with those temptations ourselves, is that there is more to life than bodily life. And Jesus also reminds us of this. The life about which Jesus is speaking of losing is not just our bodily life. It's eternal life. There is, there is a death that keeps one dying. And life lived for bodily life ends up costing you both your bodily life and your eternal life, bringing you into this ever-ongoing death. The one who seeks to preserve his bodily life at all costs loses his bodily life and loses everything else, including, Jesus says, himself. But we ask, well, what will happen to me if, if I don't look out for number one? What will happen to me if I don't go all out to preserve my life and to get everything out of it that I possibly can. What will happen? And here's the great paradox. Here's the incentive, actually. The answer to our first question, why would anybody do this? Because Jesus says that whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the only answer to the question, how do I keep from losing it all? by losing it to Christ to begin with. Jesus 
Jesus claims here that this apparent manifest natural course of things, we live, we get stuff, we enjoy it, we die, that this course does not apply to those who lose their earthly bodily lives to Christ for his sake. That one gets it all back eternally, Jesus says. Again, we see that that Jesus is not saying, follow me, deny yourself, suffer, because suffering is good in and of itself, but because suffering is good as a means to an end, and that end is something better which is, he's already, again, taught his disciples this. Rejoice in the day when you suffer reproach for my sake, because your reward in heaven is great, he said in the Sermon on the Plain. So, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we lose our life to him? Because following him is the only way. It's the only course for saving the only life that actually matters, our eternal life. Following Jesus as he here demands isn't going to be easy at all, but it's going to be worth it and more than worth it. What if I lose my life for Christ? You'll have gained everything. And so in light of reality and especially in light of eternal reality, what Jesus is calling to do is not only not the crazy path, it's the only path. It's the only path that makes any sense. As should be obvious, he points out in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's really crazy, what's really crazy is to think that we could be ultimately happy with worldly things when we won't even have a life with which to enjoy them. It's folly to devote our entire lives to pursuit of things that we will not be able to keep, especially when that's at the expense of our eternal lives. What Jesus says here too, gaining the whole world, I think this is helpful because it kind of puts us in a particular direction of understanding the kinds of things that he's calling us to give up. What are the things of the world that the scripture talks about so frequently? Um, What are the things that we need to refuse to cling to? Well, money, riches, power, fame, pleasure, all of those things that the world seems to offer. Things which Jesus has already said in the parables. These are the things that come in and choke out faith, the desire for the things of the world. So again, if I myself having to answer this question, is is Jesus then calling us to be complete aesthetics? Is is he telling us to completely sell everything we have, empty our bank accounts, and live as, as monks? Well, no. And we see through the rest of the New Testament, I mean, there are people that still have property. This isn't what Jesus is calling us to. Are we to reject the material blessings that God sends our way? No, he's not telling us that. Well, what is he telling us then? Hopefully it's not something actually hard. No, it still is. Because what he's telling us to do is to hold these things that he gives us with a completely open hand, loosely. And, and willing to let them fall out of our hands whenever circumstances require it. And here's the point. What are those circumstances? What are those circumstances in which clinging to something is not the kind of self-denial that Christ is calling us to here? 
He helps us understand in what he says next in 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. So the picture that's painted here is of the person who can only preserve his life or his possessions or his honor by denying or downplaying his association with Christ and with Christ's teaching. What can't we possess? We cannot possess anything that we're not able to possess alongside a full assertion of our own allegiance and to our own willingness to be identified with Christ. And along with a full pursuit of his will above our own. Again, what will this mean for the apostles and for many disciples there at the time and through the ages? It would mean very literally letting go of their bodily life. When the choices are between deny Christ or die, we say, I will die. But again, there's something smaller that we might be asked to give up for the same reason. Think of it this way. Are you enjoying material comforts? Are they material comforts that you've only been able to enjoy because you've refused to obey Christ or because you're neglecting the pursuit of your growth in Christ? If that's why you have those things, if that's how you've been able to get them, then you need to let them go. What about good reputation? Do your neighbors think well of you? Would they still think well of you if they knew, as they ought, that you belonged to Christ and that you believed his teaching and that you were seeking to follow his teaching? If not, then you should not be enjoying their high regard. You should deny that and let it go. What if someone knows you're a Christian, but they still think well of you, but the only reason they still think well of you is because you've pretended to be one of those open-minded Christians who don't really take all that seriously what Jesus actually says about a number of things, like exclusive salvation in him or um, condemnation of sexual immorality. If you can only keep someone's good opinion, and if you've only kept their good opinion to this point by appearing not really to accept what Christ has actually said, then that falls in this category of acting out of shame for him and for his words. You've not denied yourself as he's called you to in this call to discipleship. You can't do this. Listen, here's why you can't. Because of what is in store for the one who is ashamed of Christ. A terrible thing that he says next. The one who is ashamed of him, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus has already clearly referred to himself by this name, the Son of Man, about half a dozen times in Luke. He's speaking of his own glorious coming. Which again, as a reminder, we kind of skipped over it. But when Jesus announces his suffering and death, he says at the end, and be raised. It's a reminder for us that this suffering, this death, this shame is temporary. It ends in glory. The glory of his father, the glory of the angels, he will return. 
And so again, like we've seen earlier in the story of Luke, more affirmation of his divine power and authority. There will be a coming. And at that coming, there will be an assessment. And he is the one who will be making that assessment. And here we have a reminder of, again, what we've already heard in the preaching of John, which was months ago for us, that the one who is mightier than him is coming. And that one of the things he would do was separate the wheat from the chaff. And they would gather his wheat into his barn. The chaff he would burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus, the one who's about to suffer, will nevertheless one day be the glorious judge. And listen to what will be assessed. Your allegiance to Christ. Note again what Jesus is saying about himself. The eternal destiny of Everyone who has ever lived is going to depend on that person's relationship to him. It's going to depend on that person's lack of shame or shame for being associated with him. And for those who have refused to deny themselves, those who have instead denied him, for those who have refused to take up the cross, but have instead taken up the things that the world had to offer that they can gain through denying the cross, to those who have disavowed or disobeyed Christ in order to preserve their bodily life or their pleasures or their comforts or their reputation, they will lose all of it. All of it and more. And in its place, all they will have is shame. And not the shame that comes from mere creatures with no ability to actually assess what's truly valuable. But shame that comes from the ill word of their maker. The deepest and truest and most unbearable and everlasting shame. To have been ashamed of Christ on that day is to have lost your life and it is to completely and irremediably lost yourself. This is why it's so important that we be willing, that we wake up each day always ready to set aside any good thing that we can only keep by hiding our allegiance to Christ. Now listen, if we failed in this, And who hasn't? Are we to think that our doom is secure, that it's over, it's finished? It's nice that Luke relates this teaching to us early in the gospel because what are we going to see? We're going to see the disciples all deny him and all flee and all be welcomed back when they repent. Remember that. As you struggle through this, uh, remember that they did exactly what Christ is condemning here and see in their example the possibility of repentance and Jesus' willingness to grant full forgiveness. But do repent. At this point in this discourse, Luke has Jesus pull back a bit from his broader generalization 
and now adds this final line. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Of what is Jesus speaking here, and why is it here that he speaks of it? I lost the coin toss with Tyler, and so I have to try to answer that question. A little background, hopefully not too much. There are all sorts of things in this passage and in the passage to follow that are pointing like arrows to Daniel 7 and Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, one who comes on the clouds of heaven with great glory, one who comes into a kingdom. There are plenty of clues in the next section that Tyler's going to be handling, the transfiguration of shining countenance and white clothing, all of these details that are there in in Daniel 7. And so... There isn't a whole lot that I'm able to say with a great degree of certainty, but let me say this. The details of what Jesus is saying here and the details of what follow, I think, should take our attention to that. This vision of the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Now, it's a real shame that Tyler's not here to defend his position on this this morning, but... I take what, what Jesus is describing here not as sort of a subjective experience that some people will have at different times, but a description of an actual event, something that's going to happen definitively in redemptive history. So not just a, a, merely an individual vision of an ongoing reality. Like some people will say, this is fulfilled in the transfiguration. I think it's related to the transfiguration, but I think it's both of those are pointing to something else. So an event that hasn't yet happened when Jesus is speaking here. Um, and an event that will only happen, as I read it, after Many of those who are standing there right then had died, but while some of them still had not. Um, So the connections to Daniel 7, also the connections with the other Gospels and their version of this passage and also of the Olivet Discourse, um, which all tie together. Everything that's being talked about in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9. I've... uh, that's 20, chapter 21 in Luke. Hopefully, Tyler will let me preach that passage too. But all of this together, I think, points to these events as being not events that will happen immediately or in the next few days, but, as Jesus says in Luke 21, before that generation passes away. And I think that Luke himself will tie these scenes together with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in chapter 21. Again, maybe Tyler will let me tell you that in several months. So I think it's talking about that event. That's what he's saying here. But to the second question, and the more, I think, relevant one to us at this point. Okay, why would Jesus refer to all of this here? Um, Why would he tell, right after he's just dropped this bomb on what discipleship looks like and how difficult it's going to be, why would he tell them that some were going to live to see this event, whatever it was? Well, it seems to be this. It seems to be an assurance that he would preserve those whom he has chosen to preserve, that everything is completely within his control and in his hands. It seems to be an assurance that not all of them are going to succumb to the closely approaching difficulty and persecution. It's similar to what Matthew records 
when he sends them out and tell, he told the twelve that they wouldn't finish going through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man would come. Um, it's like Matthew, I think, and Mark both record him saying in the Olivet Discourse that those days would be shortened so that some would survive. In the end, we're reminded in this last saying of the certainty and the complete and total trustworthiness of every promise of Christ. And this, tying it back to what he's just been saying, I think is where this call to discipleship merges with everything else we've been seeing in the whole Gospel of Luke about what faith is. That faith that Jesus keeps telling people, this faith has saved you, your faith has saved you. What does discipleship look like? Discipleship is what true faith looks like. Think about this. It means letting go of all of our own efforts to preserve our life and to preserve our happiness by our own strength, our own ability, our own cleverness on our own terms. And it means placing the whole matter of our life and our happiness completely in God's hands. It means walking forward in faith that following Christ and enduring all of the terrible things that can happen because you're following Christ. In doing that, you will never, ever lose anything good that you won't ultimately get back better. This is what discipleship is. It's trusting Christ to fulfill his promises to bless us. It's this promise and it's all of the promises made in Christ that make coming after Christ, denying ourselves, taking him by cross, and following him. It's what makes it the only sensible thing to do. Let us pray.